there is a lack of diversity in the cannabis sector, especially when it comes to dispensary ownership. For context, in Long Beach, 0% of dispensaries are owned by the black and brown community. Unfortunately, this is not unique to Long Beach. It is an endemic statewide. Black and brown dispensary ownership is pretty much non-existent. Welcome to the show, folks. You're listening to City Council Meeting Notes on KLBP, Long Beach Public Radio. My name is Kevin Flores, editor at Forth.org, and I'm joined by my co-host, Emma DiMaggio, the managing editor of the Signal Tribune, to round up some of the noteworthy items that went before the council in October. Howdy. So we just heard there from a speaker addressing the council during a discussion on whether to expand the city's cannabis equity program. Um, can you give us the deep Sema on what the gentleman was referring to? I can. The council received not one, but two follow-up reports on cannabis this month, both of which hope to increase opportunities for the city's cannabis social equity applicants. Currently, none of Long Beach's 32 cannabis dispensaries are equity-owned. These retail licenses were awarded before the city even had a cannabis equity program, and no additional licenses have been awarded since 2016, when voters first approved the 32 businesses for medical marijuana sales. The city's equity program provides training and funding for equity applicants, which include those directly impacted by the war on drugs, which, of course, disproportionately impacted people of color. Thus far, the program has been, quite frankly, a failure. Only one of 117 applicants have successfully opened a business since the program began in 2018. But that may soon change. The City Council is considering adding eight additional retail licenses reserved specifically for equity applicants, which means eight more dispensaries in Long Beach and eight more opportunities for equity owners. That would be a 20% boost in Long Beach's cannabis equity ownership overall. To pay for the program's overall half a million dollar price tag, The proposal includes a 0.25% increase in the city's cannabis tax. The move would bring the city's tax up to 10.5% on top of the state's 15% excise tax. Here's Councilmember Al Austin on the proposed changes. I think uh, eight dispensary licenses exclusively for cannabis equity applicants um, is a reasonable and manageable starting point, right, for the market. That doesn't mean that it's capped and that, that it'll be over with. <laughs> we can we can always look at doing more. I, I'd love to see us move faster and expedite the process, but the idea of a 25 or 0.25 percent uh, tax is, is a little troubling for me uh, as well. We want to we want to move this equity program forward, um, and and I'd like to explore other ways to to getting there meeting the the financial needs associated with with building this program out. It should be noted that dispensaries are one of the most lucrative kinds of cannabis businesses, but they also come with hefty startup costs. Nonetheless, these retail licenses are somewhat of a golden ticket to entering the world of cannabis. The city plans to use a quote-unquote merit-based lottery to choose the eight applicants, 
The process is expected to include a panel review of application and interviews to evaluate an applicant's potential for success. Those who make it through the review will be then entered into a lottery for one of the eight licenses. It should be noted that there was some pushback on the lottery idea and the application process has not yet been designed. Here's some public comment on the item. There isn't really a social equity program in the state of California that actually in its entirety works. Time will tell uh, the actual best direction for cannabis equity and all social justice efforts that are happening here in the city, state, and nationwide. Uh, but there is some wrong steps to start going down this policy. First, raising taxes is not the right step to moving policy forward. Um, some good things that is going to be key to a successful program is opening up the zoning for all applicants. That is definitely the right step. Also, ensuring sustainability of the new and existing facilities to avoid over-concentration within the city. Currently, there are 32 non-equity-owned dispensaries in operation within the city, and they have been operating for years, yet these next eight potential eight social equity-owned stores that we discussed tonight patiently yet impatiently wait for their chance to operate. I do ask tonight that you do your best to expedite this process. Also, as Emily mentioned, locating property is the biggest problem, but that problem could be solved if the city gave us access to its own properties, which would help us to avoid those predatory practices. Also, regarding the lottery choice, I do ask that you all do not allow the lottery choice of dispensaries where greedy snake investors seek to benefit. Instead, begin with the waiting list that the program already has in place, starting with applicant number one. Having a lottery, that's a lot. And then you're still asking for money to hire more people. Shared kitchens have been passed. Shared manufacturing has been passed since July. What's going on with that? Have you reached out to anybody who's already in the manufacturing and say, do you want to work with social equity? There's no, where's that uh, study? We're sitting here frustrated. You're telling me to wait another 2022 to get in on a lottery. That's just not, we've been sitting here since 2016. Like, what are you guys going to do to help us get into business? Help me help you get your taxes so I can help the community. The final application process is yet to be seen, but some on the council, like Mayor Robert Garcia, suggested adding more weight to applicants who have been involved with the program since its inception. For those who don't receive a cannabis license, the proposed ordinance allows an unlimited number of delivery-only licenses for equity applicants. Currently, only businesses with existing commercial licenses, aka existing dispensaries, are allowed to deliver cannabis. There are other challenges outside of startup costs for retail cannabis businesses. The city has a green zone where cannabis businesses are allowed to operate, essentially buffers around places like schools, daycares, and playgrounds. Limited real estate could halt equity applicants' dreams of ownership before they've even begun. Here's cannabis program manager Emily Armstrong on the issue. Properties that comply with all the current regulations are very limited in the city, as most commercial corridors are within the buffers of schools, parks, daycare centers, and or beaches. Staff identified that expanding the green zone would help alleviate some of the challenges with securing viable properties. Without an expanded green zone, it is possible some equity applicants will find no viable properties to conduct their cannabis business, or they will experience significant delays due to the extended search for a viable property. 
by reducing school buffers from 1,000 feet to 600 feet, removing all park and beach buffers, and adding 600-foot buffers around playgrounds and community centers, the city could increase the green zone by 3.1 square miles. City staff are expected to report back on the items in early 2022. They expect the application process to be designed and open by May, with the eight lucky applicants selected in November of next year. Speaking of weed, uh, let's get into the weeds of a policy change the council voted on this month to help spur the creation of affordable housing. The council passed an ordinance that would boost incentives for developers that opt to build affordable housing in certain parts of the city. Uh, These density bonuses, as they're called, include things like being able to build more floors, or provide fewer parking spaces than zoning rules would otherwise allow. These incentives will apply to projects in residential areas that serve as job centers, major transit stops, or transit corridors, and already and, and areas that already allow five or more housing units per lot. What that means is that these changes will mostly apply to the downtown and midtown areas and won't affect neighborhoods zoned for single family housing. Now, in exchange for including very low, low or moderate income housing units, developers will be eligible for reductions in parking and open space and increases in height. The amount of rewards they can claim will depend on the area where the project is located and how many affordable units are planned. In some cases, the incentives are greater than even what the um, state law provides for. So, and this is going to get, like I said at the beginning, it's going to get kind of in the weeds here, but um, let's let's take a look at at an example. So let's say a developer was planning to build a 36-unit building in an area designated as a high-quality transit corridor. And this just means um, a place where where there's frequent bus service. Uh, The developer in this scenario would be eligible for an 80% density bonus if they pledge to make 15% of their units affordable for very low income households. Uh, The way the formula formula would work is that the developer would then be able to increase the maximum number of units in the building to 65, uh, as long as six of them were affordable. Now, if you're you're following closely here, you might notice there's some funky math. And the reason behind this is that the 15% affordable housing requirement uh, will be calculated from the number of units in the original proposal, which in this hypothetical case is 36 instead of the amount after the density bonus is applied. Um, Now, any affordable housing built through this program would have to be deed restricted, meaning the rent restrictions must stay in place for at least 55 years. Density bonuses aren't anything new Uh, The state has offered these types of incentives since 1979, Uh, but according to city staff, the incentives have not been very successful at encouraging the construction of affordable units in the numbers necessary to alleviate the the housing crisis. Here's Planning Bureau Manager Patricia Diefendorfer uh, presenting to the council back in September when the ordinance was first presented. As we've noted, the state density bonus has not been sufficient to encourage housing production in the city. It has been used only in very limited instances in the past couple of decades and usually by projects that are already proposing 100% affordable housing. 
Between 2005 and 2017, only 49 density bonus units were produced, according to a memo from the city manager's office. And if we go all the way back to 1983, only 204 units have been created through this program. Now, it's important to note the the sheer breadth of the housing crisis, even just locally. 43% of Long Beach renters are housing cost burdened, according to the city. Another indicator of the size of the problem is the amount of affordable housing the state says the city needs to build, 15,000 units by 2029. The changes to the developer incentives approved by the council this month are meant to be temporary and will sunset when the city reaches that housing goal or by 2029, whichever occurs sooner. So the city gave preliminary approval to an inclusionary housing policy in January that requires developers planning residential buildings with over nine units to set aside a certain number of units as affordable. How will that policy interact with the density bonus? Yeah, so uh, because the inclusionary housing policy applies to the downtown area and the transit-heavy Long Beach Boulevard corridor, Um, there's going to be a great deal of overlap between the parts of the city where these two policies will apply. Um, City officials have said that the two policies are meant to dovetail um, with the incentives uh, from the density bonus helping developers offset costs of complying with the inclusionary housing policy. Um, The one caveat here is that, that inclusionary housing projects will be eligible for fewer incentives than otherwise would be allowed under these updated rules. You're listening to KLBP 99.1 FM, Long Beach Public Radio. After the break, we'll talk about how the city hopes to increase the reach of its COVID-19 renter assistance program and what's going on with the partially finished concession stand on Alamitos Beach. Stay with us to find out.
I'm Kevin Flores, editor at Forth.org, joined by Emma DiMaggio, managing editor at the Signal Tribune, and you're listening to City Council Meeting Notes on KLBP 99.1 FM. City staff are looking into how they might streamline the city's emergency rental assistance applications as nearly $50 million lie unallocated. As of October 6th, only 29% of the city's $64 million in rental assistance have been dispersed. These funds come from a combination of state and federal dollars, both of which come with stringent documentation and eligibility requirements. To get more funds out the door, the council directed staff this month to work to create an application that would allow landlords to submit one singular application on behalf of a group of tenants. City staff will have to consult with the state treasury department to see if any wiggle room exists in its current application requirements. Here's council member Mary Zendejas on the item. What we are doing is acknowledging the inequities that exist within our rental assistance program, and it is um, proposing a solution for it. There are about 8,500 applications that have been incomplete. That means that there are thousands of potentially low-income households who need this support, yet because of technicalities, wouldn't otherwise be receiving that kind of support. With more than 43,000 people at risk of being evicted, we need to do better job of ensuring that no family is evicted, especially as we have our holiday season coming up. Here's Grecia Lopez-Reyes, Executive Director for the Long Beach Coalition for Good Jobs and a Healthy Community on the applications. While this program has tried to help many households with rental and utility payments, the difficulty of the application process discourages tenants, especially low-income renters and our undocumented communities from accessing these funds. It is confusing, inaccessible, and requires an unnecessary amount of documentation. The city itself cannot change state or federal requirements for allocating the funds, including required documentation, though they may be able to convince the Treasury Department to make a variance. Some members expressed hope that the state would expand income levels so more residents would qualify for the program. Here's Councilmember Susie Price and Deputy Director of Development Services, Oscar Orsi, on the topic. So what what have we done? What can we do? What are our limitations? And then the other question I would have is, I think a streamlined process is great, um, but our streamlined process is really just more the application process. The requirements are still going to be what's required statewide. Uh, regardless of the type of form they have to fill out, we're not we're not able to eliminate any of those documents that are required. Is that correct? Thank you, Council Member. Um, I believe this motion will allow us to reach out to the state and uh, Treasury Department to see if there's other mechanisms beyond what the current regulations allow in order to streamline the process. We've been having conversations with both entities to further push the uh, the risk profile to be able to streamline the process. So we will continue that based upon the, your motion today. Even if landlords are able to apply on behalf of their tenants, those tenants will still be required to provide documentation under current regulations. These include proof of unpaid rent, proof of income, documentation of how they were impacted by COVID-19, and a demonstration of risk of experiencing homelessness or housing instability. But challenges abound for residents, even when they do meet eligibility requirements. Here's Vice Mayor Rex Richardson discussing some of the challenges. We understand that Long Beach is a very diverse community. We have digital divide issues. We have some areas where it's harder to connect to the in, to the internet. Uh, we also know that immigration status makes it more difficult. 
Um, and so the burden is on the tenant pro to provide the worthiness of this uh, program. Currently, um, a tenant alone can apply or as a tenant and a landlord, the tenants who need the most help are often the ones who are more likely to not have the required documents in order to actually receive the, the have a completed application to receive the assistance. We have 4,500 unfilled applications because they're processed by one side, not the other. We have 8,500 incomplete applications because a tenant or a landlord is having difficulty finding the documents or none of the current proxies like Medicaid or unemployment insurance enrollment can be applied in those scenarios. As of October 6th, there were 6,000 unfilled applications and 8,500 incomplete application for the Cindy's Rental Assistance Program. If Long Beach can't get money out the door, they may face additional consequences. The state treasury department has stated that beginning September 30th of this year, it will begin to reallocate unspent funds from low performing jurisdictions to high performing jurisdictions who have better, who have had better luck assisting their tenants. High performing jurisdictions are those who were successful in allocating more than 65% of their rental assistance funds. Long Beach has a ways to go until it can meet that threshold. Otherwise, it may have to give up its remaining rental assistance funds. At its current rate of disbursement, Long Beach will not be able to pay out its full allocation until August of 2022, nearly a year after the unspent funds will have to be returned to the Treasury. City staff are expected to report back on options at a later meeting. So we heard we heard Councilmember Rex Richardson um, mentioning that there are there are some challenges that that tenants face when when applying for this money. So um, could you clarify just how stringent these requirements? Um, are to qualify for this program, and, and do you do you get a sense that the city is willing to work with tenants who may be in maybe the gray area on some of these requirements, or or maybe just don't have all of the documentation needed? So there is a self attestation form for things like income level and impact by COVID nineteen that residents can submit if they don't have the documentation to prove those requirements. Um, during the meeting and in general over the past few months, city staff have seemed willing to work with residents on qualifying them for assistance. Um, at this past meeting, they even said those with higher income levels whose income dropped below 50% of area median income could also qualify for the program um, if they worked with city staff to obviously meet those qualifications. Um, the general attitude by everyone is that if you think you qualify or even might qualify, reach out and submit an application. There's money to allocate, and I think the city is set on getting as much of it to residents as possible. Uh, moving on to our last item for the show, the city's plans to build a concession stand at Alamitos Beach have run into the sand. The contractor that was working on the $9 million facility uh, was kicked off the project for missing several deadlines. The council voted earlier this month to terminate the city's contract with Classic Engineering and Construction and force the company's bonding company to bring in a new contractor to finish the job. City officials say despite several extensions and chances to complete the project, Classic was unable to get the job done and failed to clear critical hurdles such as inspections and approvals. The work on the project began in 2019 and was originally slated to be completed by April 2020. That was later pushed back to October 2020 and then July 2021. But so far, the concession stand is still sitting behind a chain link fence about 90% complete. 
First District Councilmember Cindy Allen said she was, quote, disappointed by the original contractor's failure to complete the project. Uh, let's listen to some of what she had to say. I was definitely uh, disappointed um, when you see exciting projects like this um, that get delayed um, due to the contractors. And I know I was walking by this location regularly and is excited to see it going to get it to get it opened. Um, but I do know the city has made every effort to engage with the contractor and address uh, certain issues. Um, and the contractors have just been unable, you know, to meet the deadlines and uh, complete the job on time. A couple of months ago, the council chose Argentinian Steakhouse Gaucho Grill to operate the facility, which will feature a sit-down restaurant, cafe, and mercado offering uh, to-go options according to the preliminary plans. City officials now expect the facility to be finished by early next year, but it won't open to the public until next summer because Gaucho Grill will still need to do some work on the interior to get it up and running. And that's our show for this month, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, the City Council meets at 5 p.m. on the first three Tuesdays of the month. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter for breakdowns of important agenda items and live coverage of each meeting at LBC Meeting Notes. And don't forget, when Council's off, we're on the air. Catch our show on the last Friday and Sunday of the month at 11 a.m. on KLDP 99.1 FM. You can also listen to an archive of past episodes, as well as this show on demand on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And as always, special thanks to our engineer, Gabe Perales, the whole KLBP crew, and my co-host, Emma DiMaggio. The music by my colleague, Esther Kang. My name is Ken Flores. Take care.
Dear little bird.